was supposed to be 50. But, but I suspect it was needed for some, somewhere out there, someone needed to hear that. So that's God's doing, I trust. This morning, I've got good news and bad news. But I have a problem. I'm not sure which one to tell you first. So I'm going to seek your feedback. Hands up if you'd prefer the bad news first. Hands down. Hands up if you'd prefer the good news first. I would, we don't have time to find out why, but that is pretty close to what studies show as to who wants to hear what first. It looked to be about 90% to 10% in and around that. In fact, that's a little more than studies show. A 2014 study by psychologists Angela Legg and Kate Sweeney found that 78% of people prefer the bad news first. As they studied this, the overwhelming notion, and perhaps you can nod in agreement, those of you, if you agree with this, the overwhelming notion was to get the bad news out of the way first and end on a good note. However, there was a more interesting conclusion that came out of this study that I'd like to share with you. And it is this. In general, we like improving sequences of news as we hear them. So we like to hear the bad news and coast into the good. Because, and here's the important part, the last thing we hear affects our mood the most. However, the study, and this was a non-Christian study, so it's a secular psychologist study, noted that perhaps we should want the bad news last, and that was the purpose of this article, because it has a greater possibility of affecting our behavior rather than our mood. Bad news first, good news last, puts us in a better mood. Good news first, bad news last, might inspire us to behavioral change, was their notion. So the choice becomes, am I most concerned about my mood, or am I most concerned about my behavior? Interesting question to contemplate, especially in light of our participation in God's plan. Is it that I may live? Or is it that I may help others live? Turn with you to 1 Corinthians 15 as we start. And as you do, we'll review briefly here the context of this letter that Paul wrote to this congregation. This congregation that was floundering at this point in their existence, set in a very immoral city, a city that was a large commercial center, a particularly key crossroads, uh, a marine crossroads, with influences many cultures visiting the city, moving in and out of the city, this port city. And the congregation had been sidetracked by allowing sins and conduct unbecoming the people of God to seep into its culture. They were the church of God, 
but they weren't behaving like the church of God. In a response, Paul wrote this first letter in a response to a letter that he received from some concerned faithful members addressing issues that they had brought to him. He couldn't be there in person, so they wrote to him, and he wrote back. And he addressed these issues one by one and did so in an, in a, an effort to prepare them for the spring holy days. Issues like division in the body. Not just what we see here in the Church of God movement today, issues corporately, division corporately, but at a local level, within their little congregation, there was division. A tolerance of immorality. Not working with sinful people, but a tolerance of immorality and of evil behavior within their little flock. The use of outside jurisprudence to settle matters between brothers and sisters in Christ. Unhealthy marriages and a complete lack of understanding of what makes up the foundational elements of the society that God built, and that is marriage and family and a complete lack of discernment and care for the body of Christ, especially during the high seasons. These were some of the issues that Paul worked through. He then proceeds, after dealing with these issues one by one, to encourage them to serve one another. As you're working through these issues, getting your mind off yourself and figuring out how I can be of service to the body, helps them, would help them work through these issues. These issues aren't solvable overnight, but with an attitude of service, it would bring them a long way. In the spirit of agape love, where we actually did hear read in the scripture reading, being led by the Holy Spirit. And then one gift in particular, he covered the gift of prophecy, which isn't has nothing to do with the correct prediction of dates and a self-serving uh, spotlight on a speaker, but more importantly, the, to use events within the confines of God's scripture to edify, exhort, and comfort people towards better behavior, towards repentance, towards getting things right, and, and being active, healthy, serving organism. Which is where we then pick up the story here in chapter 15 and verse 1. Moreover, And as we've covered this back home, we're going to cover it here. This word, moreover, is important. It's a conjunction. The Greek word is D-E-H. That's, don't need to do, go do a deep dive into that. But that specific conjunction is done so to bridge two streams of thought together. And it can be done in one of two ways. It can be done to connect them, that they both are kind of talking about the same thing, or can be done to, to contrast them. But this word, moreover, is basically saying everything I've said to you thus far is to get to this point. So we've covered a lot here. We've covered all these issues that are going through here. We've covered how to get through them. We've covered, we've covered how this sin is dividing the group. We've covered how your behavior is unbecoming the people of God. But it, and, and then how to get through this, to serve one another, to love one another and to edify, exhort, and comfort one another. 
I say all of this to get to this point. And the point is this. I declare to you, brethren, the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you stand, by which you also are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So everything I've said here is because the gospel is so important. It is the foundation of why we exist, that you need to fix all of these things because the gospel is this important. Everything revolves around this. Then he continues in verse 3 with another conjunction. For those of you who are well past school years like me, conjunctions are connective words like if, but, and and. Those are the most common ones that we use in the English language. He uses another conjunction here, the word for. It's a different Greek word, the word gar. And it is not a, it is not a connective uh, conjunction the way the other two were, to do it either comparatively or contrasting. This particular conjunction for is one that proceeds to assign a reason or an explanation for the previous statement. So follow that through. We've covered all of these issues and how to get through them and why it's important to work through them to get to the main point he's trying to say here, and that is, I've declared the gospel to you, and it is crucial and important here. And then he says, why? Why is that so important? He then proceeds to say, for I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. And then proceeds a grand expose on explaining what he means by this gospel. So what I would like to do today is to take some time to study Paul's explanation of the gospel and how he brings this very corrective letter to a conclusion. And why does his detailed correction throughout this letter, culminate in pointing them back to the gospel. And what does all that have to do with our celebration here at the Feast of Tabernacles? The gospel, of course, derived from the Greek word euangelion, means, I'm sure almost everybody could tell me what the meaning of the word gospel is. Feel free to shout it out. Good news. It means good news. Christ himself called it the good news of the kingdom of God. The writers of scripture calls it many things. They call it the gospel of God. They call it the gospel of the grace of God. They call it the gospel of Christ. They call it the gospel of the glory of Christ. The gospel, the eternal gospel, the gospel of peace. And I'm sure in many, many other ways. But there's only one gospel. It's described for us in many ways, but there is only one gospel. And as you know, many counterfeits, but there's only one true gospel. Have you ever asked this question? Why? Why the need for good news? Why the need for good news? We need good news because there's bad news. If there was no bad news, it would just be news. But we need good news because there's bad news. Let's go back and look at bad news first. Before we get into the good news, let's start back in Genesis 1. The first little bit here, we're going to be speeding through some scriptures here. So I appreciate the 
folks who are serving here, putting them up on the the screen here for us. We will go through these quickly for time's sake. It's important we get through them so we can get to the main point. Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. And to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. Then God saw that everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. The other days were good. This was very good. He has a plan to create man after his image. Everything else was created after, created after its own image and after its own kind. But man was created after their image. Genesis 3. I told you we were going to go through this quickly. Verse 16. You know the story. Feel free to read through the, the gaps on your own. Eve succumbs to temptation. Adam falls in rather than leading her out of it. Fell in and turned his back on God. Verse 16, their punishment to the woman. He said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake, and in toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the herb of the field, and in the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Man falls. And then verse 22, he is expelled from paradise. Behold, the man has become like one of us, God says, to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take of the tree of life and eat and live forever, as this, tra- as this sentence trails off. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. And he drove out the man and placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Man falls and he's expelled from Eden. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. The bad news continues. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. Imagine ten generations it took. Ten generations And nearly everyone was evil. Not bad. Not stumbling. Evil. And he was sorry he did this. I'm sorry I did this. Imagine making God sorry. So the Lord said, I will destroy man from whom I have created, from, uh, from, uh, whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and the birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. Verse 13. 
And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. That's bad news. That is some bad, bad, bad news. Interestingly enough, fun fact, we talked about knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. This is knowledge. It's simply a fun fact. Today is the 17th day of the seventh month. What happened today in biblical history? The ark came to rest on Ararat on the 17th day of the seventh month. Fun fact, file that away. But verse 8 is a little bit of good news. Noah found grace in the eyes of God. So while this bad news is building, there's a little bit of good news. Genesis 11, verse 5. Feel free, as I said, to fill the gaps in for time's sake. We will jump into the context. Two generations later, under the watchful eye of Nimrod, the Lord came down, verse 5, to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language. And this is what they begin to do. Nothing now that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore its name was Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over all the face of the earth. Bad news again. We just cleaned it up, and in two generations, he has to come down and revamp everything again. Confuse the languages and scatter us abroad. Genesis 12, verse 1. The Lord God said to Abram, a few generations later, Get out of your country, from your family and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who curse you. And I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We've, we even heard in the, the sermonette, uh, Brother Tony talked about that covenant he made with Israel. This is part of that, part and parcel of that covenant. Verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants, I will give this land. So amongst all of this bad news, God is working a plan, and he selects a people. He selects a man, a faithful man named Abraham, to make a covenant with. For chapter 17, verse 1. Years later, approximately 24, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. 
for I've made you a father of many nations, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And we'll hear more and more about this as the feast goes on. We don't have time to dig deep too deeply into this, but this was an unconditional covenant from God. Go back a couple of chapters, we won't have time, but where God made Abraham fall asleep, he was a Brahma, I suppose, at the time, and split the animals and walked down the middle while Abraham was asleep because Abraham had nothing to do with this. God was sealing the covenant himself because it was unconditional. He would be their God, he would give them land, and they would be his people. Exodus 19. We don't have time to go through all the patriarchs, so we'll skip through them. Hundreds of years later, to a prophet of the ages named Moses. God's people had been in captivity for hundreds of years. They come out of captivity. God leads a man named Moses to lead them out. And he brings them to a place called Sinai. Verse 3, Exodus 19. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, Abraham's descendants, part and parcel of how that covenant got passed down. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. You see how I am doing my part in fulfilling the covenant. I am protecting you. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. We're starting to see God's plan come together in the midst of bad news. While they were going through some of these issues, he keeps going back to this covenant that he made. And he's doing it now through a people called Israel. And they shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Exodus 24 he gives them, before this, after he, they're there at Sinai, he gives to them his law. Not just the Ten Commandments, but expands upon it. Chapters 21, 22, 23, we talked about it in here, how to guide their behavior with the uh, young, young adults. Chapter 24, they accept the covenant. Abraham accepted it. Isaac accepted it. Jacob accepted it. We now come to the people called Israel, and they accept the covenant. Verse 3, So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has said, we will do. We've heard it all. We promise we will do all these words. We will follow you completely. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord, and he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain, and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. Does that sound familiar? Sound familiar? We won't get into that today, but 
Then he sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of the people. So he sealed it with blood and read it again. And again they said, All that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. And God's people came into the covenant. Deuteronomy 1. Lots of bad news along the way. Yes, Lord, we will follow what you say. We will, we will be obedient. And they turn and are nothing but disobedient. So they wander for 39 more years out in the wilderness until all the men of war, all those who led their families in this sinful way, died of old age, of sickness, of exhaustion, whatever took them, except for Joshua and Caleb. So we're going to try this again. We're going to try this again. Verse 19. Reminding their children, the second generation of their history, Moses said, So we departed from Horeb and went through all that great and terrible wilderness, which you saw on the way to the mountains of the Amorites, as the Lord our God has commanded us. Then we came to Kadesh Barnea, and I said to you, you have come to the mountains of the Amorites, which the Lord has given us. Look, the Lord your God has set, set the land before you. Go up and possess it, as the Lord your God of your fathers has spoken to you. And do not fear or be discouraged. That was when Joshua and all the twelve spies went in. And two of them said, we've got this. God's on our side, we've got this. Ten were like... I, we, the, the, we can't do this. We can't do this. Verse 26, Nevertheless, you wouldn't go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God and complained in your tents and said, Because the Lord hates us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go up? Our brethren have discouraged heart, our hearts, saying the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. Moreover, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there. You keep teasing us with this good news, and all we see is bad news. We we can't go in. We can't do this. Verse 34, The Lord heard the sound of your words and was angry and took an oath, saying, Surely not one of these men of this evil generation. That's huge words when God calls you evil. Of this evil generation shall see that good land of which I swore to your fathers, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. He shall see it, and to him and his children I am giving the land on which he walked, because he wholly followed the Lord. The Lord was also angry with me for your sake, saying, Even you shall not go in there. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall go in there. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. But not even you, Moses, will get to go in. This failure of the first generation. But don't worry, we're the second generation. We watched all this go on. We've got this. We've got this. Deuteronomy 30. 
We know Moses was called a prophet, perhaps the original prophet. Noah was as well, actually. Hebrews does say that. One of the original prophets, Moses, here in Deuteronomy 30, God expresses his foresight to Israel that they will fail. Now it it shall come to pass when all these things shall come upon you, the blessing and the curse. So you'll be blessed when you obey, you'll be cursed when you disobey, and they're both going to come, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord drives you. When you think back and go, oh, God did say this was about to happen if we did this. We should have listened. And you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice according to all that I command you today, you and your children with all your heart and soul, speaking to the covenant people of Israel, that the Lord will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. This hasn't happened yet. This hasn't happened yet. If any of you are driven out to the farthest parts of the heaven, from the from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you. Then the Lord your God will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. And he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul that you may live. We won't go into too much depth here. Pastor Adrian covered this uh, part of this in his message. But we see the news back and forth. This brief recap of the history of God's chosen people shows how despite all of God's efforts, encouragements, provisions, his people continue to choose the wrong path. We now need to skip ahead to Corinth. Chapter 15, 1 Corinthians. The bad news, the bad news is that man and then Israel turned their backs on God. And by virtue of their understanding and agreement to the covenant, they passed on the opportunity to live eternally with God through their disobedient actions. But there is good news. You may have seen this on the information table. As you walk in, this little wooden thing, I don't know if anybody recalls seeing it, having a look at it. This is the good news. And the good news is this. God always keeps his promises. That's the good news. The good news, despite all that bad news, is that God always keeps his promises. That is the gospel. That God keeps his promises. First Corinthians chapter 15. We read verses 1 and 2. We talked about those conjunctions. God, Paul brings them through all of these, this correctiveness, through all of these issues, tells them how, why their actions were bad, how to fix it, and how to move forward. And says, I've done all this because the gospel is so important. I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which you also received, verse 1, and in which you stand, by which you also are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And to build upon that, this word for, to give you an explanation for what I just said, 
I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. So what is this gospel about? Why is it so important? Because Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. And he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures, and was seen by Cephas and the Twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then the apostles. Then the last of all, he was seen by me, also as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so they believed. So all of these things I've explained to you, it's because of the gospel. And you want an explanation? It's because Christ died for your sins. What is that? Passover. That's Passover. That's Passover. Verse 12. Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? That was an issue then. You've all seen it. You've heard witness after witness after witness. Hundreds of witnesses. How can anyone say there is no resurrection of the dead? You want to talk about this gospel? It's, it's, it's important that Christ died for our sins. But it doesn't stop there. He died, our sins are forgiven. So, so then what? So we die. We die a forgiven lot. But that's all that, that, if it's just that, that's it. We've died a forgiven lot. So what? How can anyone say, he says, that there is no resurrection? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ isn't risen. And if Christ isn't risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if, in fact, the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ isn't risen. And if Christ isn't risen, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then all who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. We could do a line-by-line study. That's not the purpose. The purpose here is to see why why Paul is defining the gospel in this way. It is talking about the resurrection of Christ. When does that take place? During the days of unleavened bread. At the time, the, the, at the wave sheaf offering, when he ascends into heaven and appears before God to show that not only can spirit come and tabernacle with men, but he can turn flesh into spirit. And he does so through the explanation of the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the connection of the Feast of Weeks, as we'll get into, to future feast days. So what is this gospel? It starts with Passover. It starts with understanding that Christ died for your sins. But it is not the finished work of the cross. The the work of God doesn't finish at the cross. It starts at the cross. It then goes into resurrection. But now, another conjunction. He's about to add, bring another point in. But now, 
Christ has died for our sins. He's also resurrected. This is part and parcel of this good news. Christ has risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man, because there was bad news, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. Because there's bad news, I've given you good news. For as in Adam all die, bad news, but even so in Christ shall all be made alive. The finished work of Christ is not finished at the cross. It, there is so much more to it. But each one of the, each one in his own order. Christ the first fruits. Afterward, those who are Christ at his coming. What's that? Pentecost. Pentecost. He writes this letter because the gospel is so important and then defines it by walking through the plan of God as described by the holy days. He then jumps ahead a little far. I like when I read the ending of a story before I get, before I proceed. I like to read the end and kind of get a glimpse. Then comes the end, he says, when he delivers the kingdom to the God the Father and puts an end to all rule and all power and authority. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Leading here into some of the messages and the meanings of the fall holy days. Death will be destroyed. For he has put all things under his feet. He returns. As we read about in Daniel and the other prophets. To crush all other kingdoms. So that the government of God takes its rightful place on this earth. And he has put all things under his feet, quoting the prophets. For when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. And we see the government of God here with God the Father being supreme. And Christ as our Lord and Savior under him. Otherwise, we had a change of thought here. A change of thought here. This otherwise is an adversative conjunction. So it's making a connection here, but it's going to display a contrast to something. And here what he is doing is he is going to counter a counterpoint. There's things out there that he's hearing as part and parcel of this explanation, he's going to make a counterpoint to something. And again, we don't have time to dive deep into this. This is just a survey of this chapter. Otherwise, he says, what will they do? Who, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? This is so important. Each of these messages of the gospel, each part of the holy day plan is so important. Because they all build off of one another. And if one is wrong, then everything else is wrong. So we can't start at the end. We have to start at the beginning. And we have to build the foundation right and build and build and build. What if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm, why are we, if they don't rise, what are we busy doing this for? Why are you wasting your time? I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus that I die daily. 
I make this choice every day to get up and make and follow God. Not just once at Sinai and then forget that I made this promise. But every morning when I get up, I promise I die for you again today. If in the manner of men I have fought with the beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. That's the choice, folks. If this isn't right, don't waste your time here. But if it is right, die daily. Do not be deceived. So he comes up to another counterpoint later. There's a bit of an interjection here, verses 33 and 34. And between these two counterpoints, we covered one, we'll cover the other quickly in a minute, he presents a profound concern for the flock. Uh, despite in, this, in all of this good news, to answer all of this bad news, he has a concern. Do not be deceived. That's a concern that Christ and Paul had for the flock. Evil company corrupts good habits. Young adults, we spoke about this just a little while ago. The difference between good and bad. Evil company corrupts bad habits. It corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. And I speak, and he's not speaking outwardly, he's speaking inwardly. We talked, young adults, remember we talked knowledge, understanding, and wisdom, and it starts with knowledge. You, you can't understand anything if you don't have the facts. Some do not have the knowledge of God. He's speaking this to the Corinthian church. And it's not just a shame to those who don't have the knowledge. It's a shame to those who do have the knowledge and haven't noticed that others don't. That's his concern. Then he gets to a second counterpoint. But some will say, he's heard all the arguments. He's heard all the arguments. Some will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Oh, foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it as a body, gives it a body as He pleases, to each seed its own body. We won't take time. This is this is. You need the knowledge first, and then we get into some of this understanding and wisdom here. And it's this is. I don't want to dive too deeply into this. We could. There are messages in here that we can talk about. But the essence here of this area, this is that man can really be raised and transformed into spirit. He really, really can. I hear the arguments against it. I'm telling you it's true. Man can be, there is such a thing as a spirit world. A man will, when we are, die and we're raised, what we've already talked about, Passover, unleavened bread, the resurrection, Pentecost, you will actually be raised and there's an opportunity for a spirit body. Although the hurts, the, the ill health, the cancer, the, the, the walking tools that we have to have, they will be gone because we will have a spirit body if, go back to that word if, that's so important. We'll get to that at the end. Verse 42, again, jumping through this. So also is the resurrection of the dead, 
The body is sown in corruption, but it is raised in incorruption. But why? Because of all of those other things we've talked about. Because Christ died for our sins. And he came and tabernacled with man. And then we're raised to glorification to show that a human being could be turned into spirit. It is sown in weakness, but it is raised in power. The, the, the counterpoints that he's covering here as he's trying to explain the gospel are all part and parcel of what we learn during this festival season. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spirit body. There is a natural body and there is a spirit body. These, this is a fact that he is stating. There is a physical, a natural body and there is a spirit body. Spirit is not some ethereal thing, uh, where God is, it's just kind of everywhere and we'll all be sort of this ethereal-like material and there's an actual spirit body that we will inhabit. And so it is written, verse 45, the first Adam came, first man Adam came as a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward, the spiritual. And we can see the, the, the lessons of the Holy Days uh, talked through here. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who made, were made of dust. As is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. As we have borne the image of the man of dust, we also bear the image of the heavenly man. Remember God's initial plan that we read about in Genesis 1 to be made after his image and in his likeness? He's saying here that is going to come true. The good news that I started out with, despite all of your efforts to derail it, my plan will come true because God keeps his promises. Now, verse 50. This is a conjunction. But before he gets to the next part, he expresses another profound concern. We read one concern back in verse 33 and 34 about not being deceived and falling into evil. He builds off of that concern here in verse 50 as he introduces this next part. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. If you want to receive the blessings that these good, that this good news says, we need to be very clear. You can't remain the way you are. Flesh will not inherit that. The mind of man will not inherit that. Sinful nature will not inherit this. We must change. Behold, he continues, I tell you a mystery. Why a mystery? Because some of this hasn't happened yet. The previous stuff was an explanation. He was reminding them what did happen, and there were witnesses. Now, there's a mystery. But God's people hold the mysteries to the kingdom of God. So for you, if you have ears to hear, hear. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. When you die, it is not forever. If, if. But we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, 
and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You won't be part of this, he says in verse 50, if you don't take this seriously and make some profound changes in your lives to this sinful Corinthian church. But if you do, this mystery that I tell you about, the resurrection of the firstfruits is what we read about. Freedom from evil and death. An overarching, complete removal of sin, not just on a personal level, but on a covenant-wide level, that those sins will be removed, not just forgiven, but removed, culminating in victory in Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God, the only pathway to salvation. Every fall festival is right here in these seven or eight verses. This mystery that hasn't happened yet, but Paul assures us, let me tell you this mystery. His purpose isn't to go in depth about each of the festivals, but to provide a recap that the message that threads through the teachings of the festivals is the method by which we learn, rehearse, and believe the gospel. You want to know what the gospel is? It starts with the death of Jesus Christ, who died for your sins. Because the bad news is, your sins have disqualified you from eternal life. But that's, but there is good news. Christ died for your sins. But it doesn't end there. There is no such thing as the finished work of the cross. It is the starting work of the cross because we've got the entire rest of the chapter to go through and we've got six more holy days to go through. The starting work of the cross. And Christ rose from the dead, not back into physical, but was transformed into spirit. Spirit into physical, spirit into uh, physical back into spirit to prove that it can be done, that God can and will do this. And calls a select few that he calls first fruits for reasons we've already heard and will probably continue to hear throughout this festival. Not for themselves, but because look at the work that there's left to do after the first fruits are risen. All of these lessons, the explanation of the gospel taught by the holy days. For those of you following along, he does conclude his letter in chapter 16. He addresses, as he does, he kind of ties things together, addresses people on a specific level, deals with some administrative issues, talks about his upcoming plans, a typical ending to Paul's letter, updates them on the work. 
followed by some positive exhortations that he closes his letter with. But we missed a verse. We missed a verse. Verse 58, chapter 15. Therefore, therefore, remember that's a conjunction. So everything that he said led to this explanation. That entire explanation culminates in this. Therefore, everything I've said comes down to this one point. My beloved brethren, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. If, 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 if we remain faithful, and there is no bigger word than if, and it's this big, but it is the biggest. If we remain faithful, if we work towards being made complete and perfect in Christ, with his help, proactively through the Holy Spirit, if we do all of this, why does he say your your labor will not be in vain? If you do all these things, from giving your life to Christ at baptism and having his, his death forgive your sins, but knowing that that's just the beginning and the rest of the good news is spread out through his entire plan that we are cel- that we have been celebrating all year. Why, if you do all of these things, will your labor not be in vain? Because God keeps his promises. That's why he keeps his promises. The good news always is that God keeps his promises. And we are called by special invite every year, invited in to learn about this again. But there's a whole lot of ifs that are on us. There's a whole lot of ifs that are on us. The bad news, good news survey that we mentioned in the beginning. The bad news first, you'll recall, meant that you were concerned about your mood. If that's what you were, if that's, and you know what, we all, almost all of us put our hands up, so it's okay, we all did. It's, they say, they say, the scientists, that it's because we're concerned about our mood. While if you picked the bad news last, you were concerned about your behavior. It is interesting to note that the prophets typically begin with bad news first and close with good news every single time. But their focus, scientists would say, the method for that is because you're worried about your mood. The prophets weren't worried about anyone's mood at all. They were worried about behavioral change. So while science thinks they've got it right, let's start with the good news and end with the bad news so that we can affect behavior. God starts with the bad news and ends with the good news to encourage our behavioral change. Their focus, the prophets, is on behavioral change because the good news is so good, you don't want to miss it. We call that behavioral change sanctification. And sanctification is a process, a process by which we move from repentance 
to glorification at his return, by which we move from Passover to the last, to the eighth day or the last great day. But for us, from Passover to trumpets, and then our work begins. And then our work really, really begins. This is nothing what we've got here. It amazes me how hard we can make it on ourselves here. But this is nothing. The work, the heavy work, the heavy lifting comes ahead. But that's the good news, that you get to be there to help with that heavy lifting. So the next time someone says, I've got good news and bad news, which do you want first? Ask yourself this. Will I let this affect my my mood or will I let this affect my behavior? Because there's another, that's simply another way of asking the question, am I here that I may live or am I here that others may live?